You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Rose Crest, Jamie Ansorge. This is Matt Glavin. This is Pat Carey. Hi, everyone. I'm Rose Christ with the New York office at Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and we are here for another edition of the Beltway Briefing, this time off the Beltway. I'm joined today with Matt Glavin and Pat Carey from our Illinois office, as well as my colleague Jamie Ansorge from New York, to talk a little bit today about the primary elections that took place in New York and Illinois. Um, We're going to start off today talking about the Illinois results, a little bit about what happened in New York, and then do some compare and contrast, see what's happening in two of the most progressive states and two of the major progressive cities in the country. Uh, So Matt, I'll kick it over to you to talk about what happened in Illinois. Great. Thank you, Rose. Um, Good morning, everyone. So we had our primary election in Illinois last week on June 28th, and there were a number of contested races, the, the top of the ticket. Uh, race was the Republican primary for governor, which um, I think at least we saw some surprises based on what people anticipated in the race earlier. The last few the weeks leading up to the primary thing started to shake out um, and the results weren't as anticipated. But, you know, the long and short of it is the, the richest man in Illinois supported uh, an establishment candidate, the mayor of of Aurora, um, a black man who'd been been mayor for two terms, I believe, and and there was a feeling that that's what the state wanted—kind of a, a moderate business type uh, person. The mayor was a, a former prosecutor, tough on crime, and they ran kind of the national themes. Um, and they came in third place to a Trump-endorsed uh, downstate um, state senator, who is everything you would expect from a Trump Republican, right? He was he was uh, photocopied out of the playbook. Um, tough on crime, he called for Chicago to be separated from the rest of the state and to create a new state and gave a pretty remarkable press conference this weekend after the horrific shooting of, in Highland Park and, and called for, uh, minutes after the shooting, called for people to just move move on. So it definitely was interesting, but there were a number of other races that kind of fit the same theme. We had a couple of congressional races where, and both on the Democratic and Republican side, where it was kind of a more moderate establishment candidate versus a challenge from the more extreme wings of each party. And in both both those cases, the, the moderate candidate lost and it wasn't particularly close. Uh, and we had the similar results at the Uh, General Assembly level as well. So I think some of the races that Pat and I wanted to highlight were the Rodney Davis, uh, Mary Miller congressional seat, as well as the the Illinois third congressional between Dahlia Ramirez and Gil Viegas, as well as Mike Zaleski's race against uh, Nas Rashid in the General Assembly. So Pat, I'll turn it over to you for, for your thoughts and maybe we can have a little discussion about those primaries. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And I think like we saw on the Republican side with, you know, Trump aligned candidates really prevailing, you you saw a similar thing on the Democratic side where, you know, progressive voters kind of that base in the Democratic Party really turned out and in a low turnout election, you know, turnout in the Chicago area 
uh, hovered right around 20%, so only one out of every five registered voters roughly turned out to be elections, you saw the, the bases really be energized and turn out for their favored candidates. Um, you know, Matt mentioned the Illinois 3rd Congressional District. That's a new district that was created. It's a Latino influence district. It's not quite a Latino majority district. Uh, Illinois has historically had a one Latino majority district, and that district was divided up in our re recent redistricting process to uh, retain its current majority, and it continues to be re represented by Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia. And then a second on the north side of Chicago was created to uh, hopefully allow for a second uh, Latino member of uh, the Illinois congressional delegation. It's a, it's a heavily Democratic seat, so the winner of the primary will uh, almost certainly win in the general election. And it pitted you know, really kind of an establishment business-friendly, middle-of-the-road uh, member of the city council, Alderman Gil Villegas, against State Representative Delia Ramirez, who is very much uh, out of the community organizer, uh, progressive background, has championed in particular uh, fair housing issues in her time in the state legislature, and she ran away with it. Uh, you know, She was competitive in all parts of the district, not just in the progressive city, but even going out into the near suburbs and the far exurbs, um, and I think it really shows um, that there is an energized base of the Democratic Party that's willing to turn out for progressive values. And, and I think uh, that, you know, in some ways reflects some of the national conversations that are going on now um, that were captured in this um, this primary election. Uh, Matt also mentioned uh, State Representative Mike Zaleski. He lost to a candidate to his left. He's the uh, chairman of the uh, House Revenue Committee, um, so a longtime established member of the House, uh, founded a group called the Mod Squad, literally a group of moderate Democrats trying to um, you know, navigate through state politics. And, you know, he was unable to escape, you know, the scandal that brought down our former House Speaker uh, last year, uh, which still has had lingering impacts in our uh, election process, where former Speaker Madigan uh, was forced to resign uh, and step down as Speaker after, you know, ties to an alleged uh, bribery scandal. Um, and uh, Zalewski's opponent was able to, you know, very effectively use uh, kind of closeness to Madigan against Zalewski in his ads. And I, I think that ultimately made a difference in what ended up being a very close race. There are two other uh, incumbent state uh, legislators on the Democratic side that also lost their primaries, Representative Kathy Willis, who represents a, a far western suburban district, and Representative Denise Stoneback, who represents a north suburban district. They both also, also lost to challengers from their left. Um, Stoneback uh, ran crossways with some of the uh, groups that had initially supported her election um, and lost the support of some of her local elected officials. And Representative Willis uh, lost to a candidate who was actually backed uh, by Congressman Garcia, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and if there was a big winner coming out of election night, it may have been Congressman Garcia and his apparatus. He backed progressive candidates really across the Chicago region. And um, I'd have to go tally it up, but I, I can't think of any races that he was not victorious in where he engaged and endorsed. Um, so that's kind of a big high-level overview of some of the key results in Illinois. Yeah, Pat, I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is that the district that Representative Zaleski's in, the, the Illinois 3rd, and Kathy Wilson's district, they're not areas that are known for being incredibly progressive. This is not, you know, Portland or San Francisco or some, some of the more liberal areas of Chicago. Th these are, for the most part, districts that you know, include some areas that are more traditionally progressive, but also have some suburban areas where have traditionally have been more, you know, blue collar, more middle of the road, more socially moderate. So this swing, I think, is 
partially demographics and those areas changing, um, becoming more diverse. As you said, Pat, I think it's just in a low turnout, the people who were fired up and voted, you know, the moderates weren't, or they weren't um, as fired up, right? They, they weren't as motivated to get out. So the, the challengers had this fire under them. And we saw that, you know, just across the board. I think that uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned actually speaks to that point, Matt, which is we haven't talked at all about Governor J.B. Pritzker, who um, I found out when I walked into the voting booth actually had a primary opponent who I had never heard of until I uh, literally checked the box uh, for the governor. And, you know, I think that is tough in a state like Illinois, where you have, you know, tends to lean demographic has, or demogra- democratically has become more blue over time, you know, without having that really kind of high profile race at the top of the ticket, I think that that did allow those more motivated voters to really come out. Um, to pivot back to the gubernatorial race, you know, Governor Pritzker got the opponent he wanted. You know, he, in concert with the Democratic Governors Association, spent a lot of money on ads, you know, painting Senator Bailey, you know, as a true conservative, as a Trump conservative, you know, attacking Mayor Irvin as, as not a real conservative, even, you know, pointing out his, you know, some Democratic ties he has in his past. And, you know, thinking that, you know, he can easily just cakewalk through the general election now that that Senator Bailey, I think Governor Pritzker's team believes is, you know, too extreme for Illinois. You know, you look at the 2020 presidential race, uh, Joe Biden ran 17 points ahead of uh, Donald Trump. And I think that's probably the ceiling for Senator Bailey. Right. And I think Governor Pritzker looks at that math and I think he got the matchup he wanted, you know, as he seeks to position himself for a second term. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I I I, I get worried um, anytime people start talking about their preferred opponent. You know, we've got I, I think all four of us on the podcast today are Democrats, and I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I remember the excitement I had in 2016 when when Donald Trump was the nominee, and I just thought it, we had cemented a victory because nobody could possibly take him seriously. And and, and no, I'm not comparing. Um, the retail uh, politics of, of President Trump and Darren Bailey, I think they're different. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I've been stung by that before. So I, I hope that uh, Governor Pritzker doesn't doesn't fall into the same the same trap. Now, if, I, if I'm him, I think his analysis is correct. I'm sure he's looking at polling, showing that, you know, we've, we've done this twice before in Illinois. Trump was never a serious threat to, to winning the state. Um, so <laughs> I'm sure JD's feeling better today. And, and I think that, I think we'd agree Pat, that without looking at who the Republican nominee was, JD had some vulnerability, right? With whether it was his fault or not coming out of COVID, looking at inflation, uh, it's obviously going to be a tough midterm for Democrats everywhere. You know, JD was vulnerable to the right person. Um, I don't think Dan Bailey's that that candidate, but it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few months. Yeah, I think for sure people are, are frustrated, and they're frustrated by a lot of different things. You know, 
from national political trends to national economic trends to, you know, things that are impacting them at their, you know, in their home with their, you know, their home budget and cost of groceries and gas and things like that. And I think that's a, a tough environment to run in when you're a, an incumbent. And I, I think that's, you know, partially why I, I agree with all your caveats, Matt, but I think that's why you saw Governor Pritzker, you know, wade into the other party's primary, which is, you know, sometimes frowned upon because I, I think he saw that you could get a real advantage there and, you know, try to try to run against some of those larger national headwinds um, and really try to carve Illinois out, you know, in the, the Midwest region and the surrounding states, you know, the governor has been really committed to trying to make Illinois this kind of um, isol or this island of um, democratic ideals and progressive values um, that I, I think, again, is something that he'll look to double down on as he gets into a second term. Yeah, and I think that that's a great point. And I, we've had two recent events that I think will um, amplify those efforts, right? With with the Supreme Court decision um, overturning Roe v. Wade, and then the horrific shooting that happened uh, just a few days ago uh, in Highland Park. The, the obvious. I want to be careful here because obviously those are those are horrible things that I, I don't think anyone in Illinois or at least no one on the Democratic side would have hoped for, but they provide um, a political opportunity. I, I don't want that to sound too opportunistic, right? But Democrats want this election to be about guns. They want it to be about uh, social issues. They don't want it to be about inflation and, and gas prices because those are things that unfortunately aren't trending in the right direction for, for anyone. And again, it doesn't mean that J.B. Pritzker is responsible for the price of the pump, but um, he's certainly going to be blamed for it here in Illinois. So I think the, the more the conversation can be about what the state needs to do to you know remove weapons of war from from people who shouldn't have them, and more about how to protect reproductive rights, reproductive freedom. I think that's the conversation that JD and the rest of the Democrats want to be having headed into November. Well, and going from having the progressives having sort of a fire under them to be able to to move the needle in the Illinois elections over to New York, where we saw the progressive sort of falter um, and perhaps not have enough wind beneath their wings, despite some interesting coalition building across different factions of the progressive party. Well, let's kick it over to Jamie to talk a little bit about what we saw in New York. And I think there are some interesting comparisons and, and actually maybe even more contrast to what we saw in Illinois. Yeah, thanks, Rose. And hi, everybody. I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to do is just a quick primer on the mess that ha has been our elections here in New York, um, which is an unfortunate setback given some recent reforms. But essentially what happened was this year was supposed to be the first time uh, with redistricting, which obviously happens every 10 years, but with a independent redistricting commission, which was meant to take politics out of the uh, writing of lines, which historically have been very gerrymandered uh, almost exclusively by Republicans who had controlled the legislature for, for a long time. But uh, that commission was set up to fail um, with five Republicans, five Democrats, and seven votes needed to adopt lines. So the commission spat out, after many months of hearings and, and uh, research, spat out two sets of partisan lines, neither of which had enough votes to uh, be formally approved, sent those to the legislature, legislature essentially ignored those lines and approved their own version, which heavily favored Democrats, given that Democrats now control both houses and the governor's office. 
Those lines were then challenged in a series of lawsuits, which ended up with uh, now essentially all the lines being thrown out and a split primary. Uh, with uh, On June 28th, we had our state assembly and statewide primaries, which we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. And then on August 23rd, we'll have our state Senate and federal congressional primaries. The assembly lines, which had been the only lines to survive all these challenges, were actually just thrown out, but the judge said it was too close to the primary date. So we had a primary with the old lines, and now we'll have to rewrite those lines as well. So the result is a ton of confusion, uh, awful turnout. Uh, It's been hard even for experts to keep up with the changing lines, the changing fields of candidates, the ongoing legal challenges. Um, but the result is is really disparaging. New York has done a lot of work to improve our elections over recent years, adopting early vote, um, and actually, for once, putting the federal and state primaries on the same day, which is what we were supposed to have this year. Um, but obviously, we've we've seen the the re- reverse result with a ton of confusion. And actually, turnout in the gubernatorial primary this year was about half that of the primary in 2018 between Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. Uh, Kathy Hochul, who was victorious in the primary quite handily so, received only about the same number of votes that Cynthia Nixon received in 2018 and her uh, lost uh, Andrew Cuomo, just to put in perspective how low the turnout was. And, you know, when we have low turnout, strange things happen. You know, this is the state where, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated uh, uh, Joe Crowley in a low turnout midterm primary. And there's always this you know, thought that, you know, a small group of highly motivated people, sometimes, you know, on the left, uh, Democratic Socialist Party, um, have seen some major wins. And there was some thought that we might see some unexpected results here in New York, Um, not as much at the governor level, but uh, in particular, uh, Kathy Hochul's preferred chosen lieutenant governor uh, candidate uh, running mate, Antonio Delgado, faced a spirited uh, challenge from the left, uh, but he handily fended it off. And Really, across the ballot line, we saw moderate Dems turn back challengers from the left, with with one exception. Um, but I'll pass it back to Rose to talk about some of the the individual results and, and how we can read into those. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that thread, Jamie. I mean, so we saw, interestingly, Working Families Party, Democratic Socialists of America, and Ocasio Cortez co-endorse eight candidates seeking to unseat incumbents. Um, including half of which were looking to unseat Democratic incumbents and one candidate in an open seat. But despite sort of this coalition coming together, they only had one true success story, right? And even more interestingly, that success story wasn't in the five boroughs, right? This was in upstate New York, and it was in Kingston and some of the rural areas um, a little bit further up in the Hudson Valley, true upstate New York for our true upstaters, right? Hudson Valley uh, district. Um, And I think that that also speaks a little bit to the shifting demographics that we're seeing up in Kingston, a lot of people from New York City sort of making the exodus through the pandemic. I know that that could be a whole other podcast in and of itself, talking about the way the exodus of Brooklynites um, and some folks from Manhattan going to upstate have changed um, the local political landscape in that region. But in the bigger picture, right, we see that even when they come together, these progressive groups just didn't have enough firepower, even in a low turnout election, really, to be able to shepherd their their folks through. There was another candidate, Juan Ardila, who was endorsed by WFP and Ocasio-Cortez um, 
in Queens and he did win his seat um, there for an open seat, but that was, you know, one win, two wins against 10, 11 candidates that they were trying to push through. So it was certainly not what you would call um, a sweeping success. There were a few other incumbents who lost in their races. We saw in the Bronx, um, a 40 year incumbent um, assembly member, Jose Rivera lost to a challenger, George Alvarez um, in Westchester's 92nd. We saw Tom Abenati lose to a challenger, Mary Jane Shimsky. Um, but neither of those were like DSA, Working Family Party, Ocasio-Cortez back candidates. Those were people who were really take, being opportunistic, seeing people who had been in office for a long time or a period of time sort of lost their steam, lost their base, right? And were, um, you know, complacency sort of gets the best of all of us at some times. And I think that that was really just like a... Uh, a virtue of opportunism and some like hard campaigning in districts without a particularly strong incumbent um, and not necessarily indicative of shifting thinking from the electorate about what kind of an elected official they want. Perhaps they just wanted someone new, right? Um, not necessarily new policy thinking. And so as we go into this upcoming like primary for the Senate races under the new lines and the congressional races under the new lines, it'll be really interesting to see whether or not the sort of like status quo election of incumbents continues, right? Or um, if we're going to see some major shakeups. And this is all much further complicated by, especially in Congress, the redrawing of the congressional lines where we have sort of like a clash of the titans, especially here in Manhattan coming up. I know Jamie is following that very closely. Yep. So I'm, I'm sure many folks have heard, but obviously in Manhattan, we have the, the east side versus west side showdown. <laughs> two, you know, titans of the New York congressional delegation, Jerry Nadler and my longtime uh, boss, uh, Carolyn Maloney. Uh, and, you know, it's a really, frankly, unfortunate situation where we have two very productive, effective members um, who now have to go head to head. And you know, if you look at the lines, you know, from the completely impartial perspective, they do make, you know, more sense from a geographic perspective than, you know, the lines in the legislature. But, you know, the reality is we've never had this truly independent academic, you know, these lines are written by a special master academic from, the, I think, another state, you know, who really didn't take any incumbency or anything else in, into uh, account. And the result is we have, you know, the most exciting and um, terrifying set of primaries we've had in a long time, not only in this Nadler versus Maloney race, but we also now have a downtown Manhattan through Brooklyn, all the way to Park Slope District, where you have everyone from Mondaire Jones running, who had represented Westchester, to former Mayor Bill de Blasio, to Councilmember Carlina Rivera, who just picked up a major uh, union endorsement this morning, and about 12 other candidates, many of whom are serious contenders, now running in a race. And, you know, as someone who, you know, likes to get involved in, uh, you know, kind of national more red to blue races, it's really been a huge distraction, especially for the New York donor community, which would otherwise be focused on, you know, red to blue national races are all bogged down in these inter-party, inter-scene primaries as a result of this awful split primary redistricting process. So that's kind of where we where we are on those August August 23rd primaries when 
often many folks have left the city to begin with. So hard, hard to predict what those outcomes will be, but I'm sure uh, the entire country will be watching. Yeah, I mean, the win biggest winner in this redistricting mess is Nicole Maliotakis, right, who is going to have a major challenge to keep her seat under the former lines and now is much more safe and who sees her Democratic challenger, to Jamie's point, really hobbled by all the donors being distracted by candidates, you know, all competing against each other for what are otherwise safely blue seats. So, mm -hmm. um Right. If you had to pick one winner out of the hat, she would be my choice. Yeah. And the other one is, is Kathy Hochul, to be honest. Oh, I mean, sure. you know, she went, you know, she obviously inherited a disastrous situation, um, quickly kind of established herself as a, you know, a great, a, a strong leader and a fundraising juggernaut, you know, and then kind of rode the roller, you know, avoided a, a, a primary from her attorney general, Tish James. Tish James, but then saw a scandal take down her lieutenant governor, mm -hmm. um, saw some controversy over uh, her budget, which included funding for a new stadium in Buffalo. And it looked like she was potentially vulnerable um, for a time there, but she won her primary handily with challengers, frankly, from the left and the right within the party um, and is set up uh, seemingly to be the first statewide uh, uh, female governor in New York's history. Though, you know, she will have a spirited challenge from Republican Lee Zeldin. Right. And I think we're all showing our our partisan politics here by virtue of the fact we haven't talked about the Republicans very much at all in the New York election. Right. But we did see Lee Zeldin handedly win um, the Republican primary for governor, um, beating out second closest to Andrew Giuliani. Right. Um, of, of the Julian claim, you know, claims to fame. So um, I, I don't think that Kathy will see too much of a challenge there, although it's possible she may see some of the folks who voted for Democratic candidate Tom Swazi, for example, also of Long Island switch over to become Lee Zeldin voters in the general. You know, if I put my finger up to the wind today, I say that, that Kathy is in the governor is in pretty good shape. Right. But it, to your point, I mean, it's interesting, the differences between Illinois and New York, but on both sides, really, the more moderate candidates beat out challengers from the fringe. I mean, there was some thought that Andrew Giuliani might catch some Trump fire, but, sure, right. um, but he, he did not. Um, so, yeah, and, and also to Matt and Pat's point, we'll see how um, the impact of the Supreme Court's recent rulings, not only on about reproductive rights, right, but also about open carry laws. I know that is the state is in the process. They just passed new state legislation that I don't believe goes into effect until September around sensitive areas in the state where guns are not allowed to be carried. Um, but in the meantime, it's certainly on the top of everyone's mind, um, with public safety being a, a, a huge issue that affects anyone in the in the state or really the country at the moment. Yeah, and I think in, in both of our states, right, the, the real question, and I think this is something that the Democrats and Republicans have to, to deal with is, you know, I feel like in the last six years, like we've just reached this point of outrage fatigue. Um, you know, people have hit it at different points. Um, Obviously, you know, the shooting this week was was close to home for for Pat and I. But, you know, we we turn we lose focus because these tragedies happen, you know, so constantly that it that it's, you know, if the election were held today in Illinois, it would be all about guns. But it's July. You know, we've got months until the 
till the general election in November. So is, is Rose still the issue? Obviously, it's incredibly important to huge portions of the population, but what's going to distract us between now and then? What's going to be the, nat the national tragedy that, that we're dealing with in late October? And it's just impossible to tell whether what we're fired up with what these primary voters who were outraged about and you know in late June if that continues until until early November. So it'll be interesting to see what you know how that plays out. I mean I think the undercurrent that that I feel when I'm in New York and, and talking to my peers throughout the state and especially in the city is just that there is this like constant fear of where is next, not when is next. And um, and so I think that if there are candidates who are able to sort of um, find a way to put forward a compelling platform to try and address the, the sort of like constant undercurrent of fear, right, of convening public spaces, of going out into the city, of getting into the subways, of being in public gatherings in your small towns for parades or other activities, right, I think that there's a real um, hunger among the voters to hear candidates address that. And so, I mean, going back to your point, Matt, like this is not just what the Democrats want to talk about, right? This is what the voters are feeling sort of as an omnipresent force in their lives. And so I think that there's a demand from the public to hear some kind of solution to that. And we hear two very different iterations of what the what solutions that might be from the Democrat and the Republican side, um, which would be interesting to sort of see what becomes most compelling. Yeah, it is one thing after another here in New York, where, you know, from COVID to, you know, Mayor Adams won on essentially a public safety agenda, mm -hmm. because we are having a number of challenges um, in the public safety space. And now you're adding concealed carry into the mix. Um, you know, not to, and, and obviously the, the, the pro-choice issues. And so, you know, I think you, you could see a very motivated democratic base here in New York. But of course, the deflating thing, you know, obviously being partisan here, but are these new lines make it almost impossible to pick up any seats here in New York, you know, towards maybe Democrats maintaining uh, control in Congress. So, you know, for every, you know, hope of an animated uh, uh, Democratic base, you have, you know, these, these immense structural challenges. All right, so looking ahead, so now we've talked a little bit about the election results. As we look into our crystal ball and we look at the upcoming legislative sessions in Illinois and in New York, do we think the results of this election are going to mean that we see changes in policy trends, specific areas picked up, certain constituencies catered to a little bit better than they have in the past? What do we think this all means as we look ahead? Yeah, so in Illinois, uh, Democrats have unified control of state government. So the governor's office, they have super majorities in both the state house and the state senate. Um, I think the question going into the November general election is whether they will retain that supermajority status in the House. I think that's the the outcome that is the most um, up in the air and is actually not that influenced by the outcomes on the primaries from last week. The, the incumbents who lost last week, those are all fairly safe Democratic districts. And those now challengers who've become the Democratic nominees, I, I think, are likely to end up becoming, you know, representative elects, you know, come the beginning of November. Um, and it'll really come down to how things play out in the suburbs. I think if you look across, 
you know, incumbent uh, Democrats and Republicans who have primary challenges. It's largely in the suburban area, which I think Chicago, like most parts of the country, has seen, you know, suburbs turn increasingly more blue over time. And it's unclear if that's a permanent shift or if it is a little bit more, you know, based on current dynamics and candidates and economic conditions and, you know, all of the above. So, you know, I think what we'll be watching as we go forward is, you know, whether Governor Pritzker is successful in securing a second term, I think it's likely he will be, you know, how many seats the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives is able to maintain, whether they're able to keep the 74 they have now and critically whether they drop down below the supermajority threshold if they end up somewhere in the high 60s. And then the state Senate, the, the Democrats have had a supermajority for a long time. I think that's less in question. But to Matt's point earlier, it, it's a long time in our current political cycle from July until November. And there are a lot of different things that could happen between now and then that would um, that could influence it. Um, and then to speak to Congress uh, for just a moment, Jamie mentioned you know partisan pickups. Uh, so the remap in Illinois even though Illinois lost the congressional seat, they were able, we we do have partisan line drawing here. Um, and we were, the Democratic majorities were able to draw the lines in such a way that Illinois will pick up, likely pick up one, dem, net one Democratic seat, despite losing one seat overall. So uh, Matt mentioned the Rodney Davis, Mary Miller race, where two Republican incumbents faced off against each other. We also had another race in the Chicago suburban area, where uh, Congressman Sean Kasten beat Congresswoman Marie Newman. Um, so two incumbents facing. Um, uh, Nikki Budzinski is a Democratic nominee for the new 13th district, if I'm doing my number right, Matt. Yep. And she, um, so she will um, likely uh, win that race. That, that district is downstate, which is traditionally more Republican in Illinois, but connects a number of population centers that uh, should make it have a pretty good Democratic edge. So there will be one uh, net gain on the Democratic side in the congressional delegation after November's election in all likelihood. Yeah, the, the only other thing I'll add, Pat, which you know, I think your analysis is is spot on, but the, they're historically, you know, we, we had Democrats in the Chicago area and some of the Chicago suburbs who were, you know, more progressive typically, but there was a fair amount of downstate um, rural Democrats historically in Illinois, um, heavily unionized area. You know, it's, it fits the national trend everywhere, uh, places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um, and what that did was it, it forced the Democratic leadership to be more moderate in Springfield, right? Because any policy that would make the progressive Democrats in Chicago happy would cost them votes in Southern Illinois. As we've lost uh, a large number of those kind of blue collar Democrats, the progressives are now saying, well, why are we not running as far to the left as possible, right? There aren't as many moderate voices standing up um, saying, well, we got we to gotta pump the brakes. There are some for sure. Pat talked about uh, Representative Zaleski forming this, you know, the mod squad to kind of hold the uh, moderate position, but their voices are, are getting drowned out, I think. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not there and that there aren't people trying to be thoughtful and incremental, um, but the folks who want to see big policy change happen quickly are demanding it. So it'll be interesting to see how leadership in the House and Senate kind of control some of those folks calling for um, for larger change. 
And here in New York, I mean, I think the big picture, we won't truly know until, I mean, we'll know a lot more after the, the Senate and congressional primaries in August. But for now, I mean, the indicators are that, you know, moderate Dems are holding their ground against, you know, what has been an ascendant left, um, which might be partially due to outreach, outrage fatigue, as, as Pat called it. Um, it might partially be due to not having the same foil in Andrew Cuomo, uh, where, you know, uh, left-wing candidates were running against kind of Cuomo-enabling Democrats previously, Kathy Hochul and the state legislature has, I think, tacked to the, the left. And, you know, to the extent I think those challenges from the left have brought the state to the left, where we now further to the left um, from, from the center and the right, frankly, where we do have uh, a trifecta control of the legislature and the governor's office. We might see Dems lose some seats in the state Senate in November, but the expectation is they will maintain control. Um, and, you know, we'll see again, I think it'll be very hard to, for, for Democrats to pick up any additional seats in the congressional map due to the new lines. But the most interesting conversation will be, you know, at the end of August, after we've seen these congressional primaries and some of these state races as well, but I'll pass it to Rose as well. No, I mean, I think that that's, that's right. I think that we're going to, we're going to see a continuation, a lot of sort of the policy trends that we've seen in the past session. And um, it'll be nice to see the governor now that she, assuming she wins in November, right, she will have been officially elected to the seat, right? And whether or not that gives her the freedom to be able to establish some more of her own legislative and policy priorities as opposed to sort of continuing out some of the tail end of things that she inherited. Um, and so much more to come. And we'll be covering all of that in future podcasts for the Beltway Briefing off the Beltway from our state and city uh, public strategies teams. I know the New York team will come back to you after we have our second primary election um, in August to talk about all of those results. Um, and I'm sure that there's much more to come in Illinois as well. So Matt, Pat, Jamie, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It was a great conversation and I look forward to uh, connecting again and sharing our thoughts more soon. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.